podcast ain't played nobody, Bill. I'm staring at a media guide, a physical spiral-bound oh. media guide. I didn't know they still made those. Yes. Um, I, I was at Troy last week, Troy University, um, as part of a, a campus visit for some of the stories that we've got in the preview and then in week one and all that. What do I do with this thing? I really – I haven't ever – I haven't ever trashed any of them. I don't get nearly as many as you do, but yeah. I've never, I feel weird about trashing it. So it just ends up in a pile. Um, I mean, it's, it is a funny process since we do have this thing called internet now. Yeah. Um, but you get them and you know that they spent money on it and they, uh, it, it took a little bit of effort to print one. And so you feel bad about tossing it, but I mean, Hey, if you're going to use it again, you go right ahead. So I will still get media guides in the mail in like a white, I think it's like the third class white mail pouch from just random schools that mail right. out media guys every year at cost. I don't know what that costs. And I, I'm, I'm just stuck with them because you do feel weird like throwing them in the garbage, but I, I have no idea what to do with them. Do you collect, like, do you keep, how, are, are you a digital person entirely when it comes to like hobbies and, but also in sports? I mean, I'm curious if people still are like how tangible they are. So like we live in a digital society now, right? You can stream anything you want. You can, you pretty much don't need the tactile side of something unless you so desire it. Right. And I know people that are fans that collect media guides and that's cool. That's fine. Personally, that it kind of makes my test, my chest tighten. Like we've talked (laughs) on the show before and I'm staring at this as well. Like the only thing stacked up in my office other than actual books are these damn Phil Steele media guides. By the way, I haven't bought 17 yet. Um, and you have talked me out multiple times, talked me out of, of throwing them away. But I yeah, just... Those things, the, fil- the, the previews, those are great to collect year to year, but I mean... But what do I do with them? Well, I have mine in a bookshelf, going back to 1994. I've actually missed a couple. Uh, and yes, I do still collect this. I, I do make sure to go nab a steel just so I have it, because once you get the collection going, it's weird to stop. But um, so you, the man who creates a more accurate and in-depth and more informed college football preview <laughs> over the course of six months, also still buys the physical version of a preview that you often disagree with. Uh, and I don't I often don't even look at it. I just buy it to have the collection going. But I mean, I support I mean, hell, but that's, I, support, but that's like I would a, rather I would rather encourage the Phil Steels of the world than than others when it comes to, you know, doing something weird and unique and comprehensive. And so, yeah, I'm going to keep buying Phil Steele. Why not? And it sounds like you do you want to throw shade at somebody right now in the industry or is that just like a blanket statement or. Well, there's this dude named Mitch Light. Uh, I don't know if you've met him. <laughs> um, he, he's kind of I, I just can't stand the guy in, in his magazine. But otherwise. Uh, no, I, I am joking. Mitch Light is wonderful people, uh, and the Athlon people are all wonderful people. But no, just generally speaking, I love weird. I love encouraging weird. And so, yes, I will get the Athlons, and I will also still get the Phils. We tried uh, to know, get you to fight Paul Meyerberg, but it turns out like you're both nice people, and you both like each other. So, I don't know. Oh, it, was God, sh- yeah. it was a short-lived feud. We, I mean, back when we were both doing our previews, yeah, we, I mean, we were interacting quite a lot, and, and uh, in a couple instances... Uh, Comparing notes and whatnot. So, no, I mean, the more the merrier when it comes to doing weird crap like that. Hmm. Uh, that is uh, not the journalist way about things. I would I immediately know. be talking a bunch of uh, S about various people working on the same project as me, <laughs> as I do often. Um, all right, well, I guess I'm going to keep these fills. This is sort of a lighthearted intro because this is podcasting played nobody. Uh, 
It's a college football marriage of numbers and words. That's the robot Bill Connolly. He invented the S&P Plus analytics system. He wrote a bunch of books. Bill, what books did you write and where, where can people get them? Uh, well, there's one called the 50 Best College Football Teams of All Time, Best with an Asterisk. You can find it at Amazon.com. And there's a book called Study Hall, College Football, Its Stats, and Its Stories that you can find at Amazon.com. Uh, my name's Stephen Godfrey. You can find me at 38 Godfrey. I'm a mere reporter who had, at the same time this week, pink eye and strep throat. I don't even really have a bridge out of that. I don't want to devote a segment to it. But I just want you, if you're driving in your car or walking or whatever you're doing right now, to visualize having peak pink eye and peak strep throat at the same time in August. How's that feel? Feel um, good? I mean, better than September. I guess. I guess. Bill, I went to Troy. And you went to Oklahoma State. Yeah. Uh, I went to Troy, spent a couple days with Neil Brown for a story that's going to run week one. Um, I think in terms of like a buy, like you and I talk a lot offline about segments that we probably need to install into the show to give it more structure because like we have advertisers now and like people from our corporate office like actually notice that we do a podcast. <laughs> um, we don't really pick games. We don't do spreads so much as we've always just sort of looked at the week to week and said, this interests me and why, or this doesn't, right? And if we were to do this, I think, and I haven't talked to Bill about this off the air specifically, but, you know, um, we should do something along the lines of, like, the game you should be watching. Because I think Troy and Boise State, week one, on the blue turf, but this is a 2.30 game on a Saturday. Why is this not on a Thursday or Friday night? Yeah, what happened here? That is kind of, well, it is week one, and so therefore there's a ton of all, uh, other games on Thursday night at so least. So put it on a Sunday. Sure. I mean, I, I'm not going to object. That really, I think the mistake there was having it week one. That would have been a spectacular week three game. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's, it's, so it's going to get totally buried. The time slot is, uh, you know, it's 2.30, I think. Think I want to say it's on like maybe ESPNU. It doesn't really matter. It's just because you know, two thirty on a Saturday, P five is just going to dominate. But this is going to be a really good game and a really impactful game. Um, and it's going to tell us who is the bigger jinx because I have a big Boise piece coming out in a couple a week or two, and you have a big and you have a Troy piece coming out. And well, so, look, I, this wasn't regarding that. This was not technically an embed because I was only there for two days. All right, I think it embedded. I think an embed is like three days minimum. Okay. It's just a story. I was 0-4 on every embed I had done until Army-Navy. So if this, what I'm saying is if Troy loses the game, I don't want this on my record. <laughs> because I've also visited other schools this offseason, like Houston and LSU and Temple and Cincinnati and stuff. Like, like if they lose week one or two, so like I'm running a piece on Cincinnati, we're going to run it in week two because they're going to play Michigan. That's not an embed. However... If they were to upset Michigan, I am going to take 1,000% full credit for that. Of course. Yes. All right. Godfrey Bump. All right. So we good with that? So if they lose, I have plausible deniability. If they win, it was me. You're coming to my universe of hedging like crazy. That way, no matter what, you could say you were right. It's a pretty good universe to occupy. Except you use math, and I'm just lying. There's a difference. So uh, Tell me about Stillwater. Because yeah. you, so you randomly end up, you go to your high school reunion. Yep. You're from Oklahoma, and is Stillwater on the way? No, 
Well, Stillwater's not really on the way to anything. So, uh, but just basically, you know, we still have family friends in Oklahoma City. We left Oklahoma City Monday morning and just kind of, it's basically 20 minutes off the interstate. It's like Oxford, kind of, you know, the, that structure of getting off the interstate and heading east for 20 miles uh, to, get to, to get to Stillwater. And I figured, why not? Went there, walked around, talked to some people, uh, took a little tour. Since the wife and kid were with me, the wife and kid also got to take a tour. Um, cool. so, so we got, a, you know, a nice Facebook picture of Aaron uh, running around on the orange in the orange end zone but um no i mean just kind of uh, you know utilized our you know our vast esteem in this world to uh talk to some people and i i'm i'm gonna say like i haven't seen as many facilities as you have uh but i've seen i mean some reasonably semi-important ones um and i i think oklahoma state in terms of land area has easily the most vast uh facilities that i've seen it is a massive structure, and it's, it's mind-blowing because, I mean, first of all, like I think the last Oklahoma ga- uh, State game I saw was 01. And so a couple things have changed since then. Uh, I saw a couple state high schools final, uh, state final games in high school there as well, so I got pretty used to the old stadium, which was basically on the west end. On the east end, you're ba- you've got Gallagher-Iber Arena to where, you know, if you're kicking extra points, you're pinging it off the brick. Uh, and then on the west side, it was basically just kind of some standalone, almost bleachers with yep. open space on each side and and whatever. It was I don't even remember what the capacity was at that point, but it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't great. It was kind of Kansas State-ish in that regard. Um, but it was just kind of an empty space. It was a concourse, more or less, behind there. And they tore that stand down. Uh, they they dug up the ground, and they put these massive facilities underground. And then you go upstairs, and you've got you know uh, filled-in bleachers. So the, the kind of the northwest and southwest corners are have seats now, a little more capacity. And then you've got just an entire row of boxes up top. It's, there's some boxes there. There's uh, The coaches' offices are right there. Gundy had a family room. Uh, installed up there for during the game that, that apparently we, we that it's not full yet we can't uh say I, I can't say i witnessed it myself but apparently it's just a ton of bean bags and stuff for the kids to go run and jump around in because they don't care about the game um that's a smart is, move that's something i haven't heard about before the weight room is mammoth so i and i mean I, and again you've seen a couple weight rooms and you're like okay well i get it but this one seemed bigger so they did a really nice job of creating as much space as possible for themselves and then filling it um and so i mean power to them it's a really impressive thing that they've done and um okay you know, so back up when you say family room anybody with kids uh, well, I think it's staff members with kids. Not so. I mean, you have to co- you you go into it from the the coach's office side of things. So yeah, right. it's anybody uh, staff, family, or maybe you know players or whatever. I don't know, but um, yeah, it's for them since they you know the, maybe there's a kid who cares about the game. He can basically stand at the wall and watch it, right. and everybody else can play behind them while uh, the game's going on. So the reason I ask that is like you're seeing this now more and more at minor league baseball parks and different yeah. arenas where the focus isn't solely on the sporting event because people with kids want to go, but then what do you do with a five-year-old or a seven-year-old gets bored? You haven't really seen that at colleges too much, but I think it's probably headed that way. Yeah, well, I mean, if we're going to keep having four-hour football games, it, it, it'll become more of a... So a the the latest addition to Death Valley at LSU is sort of... It's extra seating, but that you go inside and you, you have a pass and it's like all you can eat and it's sort of a, a, a living buffet throughout the game. But there's areas, it's in, you know, it's air-conditioned, for one, and, and there's places kind of for, you know, there's not a playground, but kids can sort of walk around, mill around, and not just sit in their seat. 
Now, I know this sort of, like, betrays the, I don't know, maybe the more virtuous fan who thinks that everyone should stand and, and watch every single play and live and die with that. And I get that. Like, when I go and see my teams play in my sports, like, I, I don't want the distraction. I don't want any of the crap. But I also am a dad now, and I'm trying to figure out, like, what's the age in which I take the kid to his first sporting event. Whatever the game is or whatever the sport is, he's not going to last, right? Right. So, it's, you know, then what do you do? I think it's probably not a bad idea for colleges to do that, like, for actual fans. Yeah, seriously. No, I mean, that's, you know, our kid, you know, she's about to turn six, and she wants to go to a game. But what she really wants is to go to the tailgate, uh, and then right. walk into the stadium and then leave the stadium five minutes later. <laughs> she doesn't want to, like, she would be bored and restless by five minutes into the game. And not, and I, I don't remember what you can and can't bring in, but we could bring the iPad and the DVD player and all this other, well, no, the DVD player, she's into Descendants now. So that would work, but I don't think you could do that. Um, Wait, can you not, like, what do you mean, like a, like a clamshell DVD player? Yeah, like a, just a, a real kind of a small portable DVD player with headphones and all that. Maybe you can't you bring that, that in. I, I have no idea. I've never tried, but you know that would be the only thing that would work for her for four sitting for sitting and standing for four hours. She would need descendants with her at all times and just watch that like three times. So this but, is sort of a delicate situation here because you are a season ticket holder of how many years now? Oh, uh, oh God! This will be my twenty-first. Okay, you are, you know, without argument, one of the most informed fans in your fan base as well as in the nation. But you occasionally bring a kid who's going to be restless into the stands. And this debate, like, lives with so many people I know. I, I want to say I know some people that are Auburn fans that started bringing their kids in under the age of, I think, like, as infants all the way through being toddlers to every game. And, you know, it wasn't, it's not someone I was friends with. I think maybe I intercepted this conversation. I, I really wasn't in a place to ask them, like, what the hell are you thinking? Why are you <laughs> doing that? But my I'm not trying to be rude when I ask, but I'm just thinking, like, what are you getting? Like, what what can you experience out of, like, I don't know, a heated Georgia-Auburn game in Jordan-Hare <laughs> when you're trying to mine two kids? Like, I can barely do it in my house. I just couldn't yeah. imagine. Now, oh, I yeah. get that, like, it's a tradition and you want to build it out and all this kind of stuff. Like, I guess I, it's definitely one of those situations now where I, I unfortunately see both sides, but I don't know what the answer is. Like, do you create a family section somewhere? Like... Because I, I I sympathize with the person who shows up in like an unnatural state of drunkenness, smoke you know sneaking a cigarette in the tunnel and then wanting to throw his drink at, when there's a bad call, but like I'm also a dad now and I, you know one day when I'm not working it would be fun to take my kid to a game and not necessarily have him in that particular environment so. I don't know if you, like, cordon off the people or... Maybe there just needs to be an adult student section at games. Okay, so... student section. Yes, so so there's a student section, right? And I'm sure you stood in the student section at Mizzou, right? Okay. So chances are, and this is, like, not knowing what life is like as a Mizzou undergrad, like, you stand for most of the game. It's, It's more crowded. People are considerably drunker, like... People might be lighting up a cigarette. Like, it's it's pretty rough. It's pretty body, right? It's like a bar. Is that fair to say? Uh, reasonably. I, I can't remember too many people lighting up cigarettes, but otherwise, yes. Okay. I think the SEC, I, I mean, not that you are SEC. I love you, but you know what I mean. I think the hardcore, like, old school SEC fans would probably disagree with you because I've been in several student sections as a student and, like, yeah, we smoked all the time. Well, um, and again, you know, you get your own little group of friends, and so my friends didn't do that. Others might have. I just never noticed. Hmm. So you have that environment. 
you have usually on the other side or like catty corner of your stadium at most of the major colleges, you have your toity. Oh yeah. 65 year old trial lawyer alumnus. Eventually the name's going to be on some building season ticket holder. They've got the seat back chairs. They've got the little radio kit thing that they listen to. They sit. I mean, we have seat back chairs there. It's, it's a pain in the butt otherwise, but yes. uh, Do you have seat back chairs now? Oh yeah. We, we gave up a few years ago and thought this is stupid. You're getting older, Connolly. So yeah. you have those fans, right? And those fans are like kind of terrible to, unless you're part of that world, kind of terrible to be around here, right? So like, cause you know, you want to yell or you want to stand up. Like they're the people who are going to tell you to sit down when it's right. like third and five and the defense is out on the field, which to me is ridiculous. But yes. they exist. Then you have everyone else. And we're not talking about the visiting section. But then so, so you go through these phases of your life. And this is all a hypothesis on my part because, look, I'm – either in a press box or at home in front of a television. I don't really do the normal fan thing anymore, but uh, <laughs> unless I go to the Super Bowl. Um, and look at how that turned out. Thanks, Bill. That was, that was productive and constructive. I appreciate that comment. Uh, you're you. the one who was watching the game voluntarily this morning. Oh, God. No, really I put yourself I on the right line. I don't want to talk about it. Um, so you have everyone else in a stadium, which I think is like the bulk of our listeners. I don't think we have too many students, and I don't think we have too many 65-year-old trial lawyers, okay? But what we do have are people who are like third, fourth year out of undergrad, coming back for maybe three to four, maybe even five games if it's a good season a year. And then you have like guy or gal, super connected, loves that like college football is their favorite sport. They're, they're, they're alma mater. their favorite team no matter what. They want to get as much of, of it as possible, but you got like a five-year-old and a two-year-old, all right? Right. I think maybe we just create, like, sections for every phase of life is what I'm getting at. <laughs> no, I think it's okay because I think, like, you're infinitely more – see, you know, it wasn't too long ago that Aaron was, like, a baby baby. You remember the, you remember the, the struggles and the trials there, right? Oh, like, oh yeah. Well, I think yeah. we still have those. Yeah, I'm in the middle of that. I have a three-year-old and a three-month-old. So when you see people struggling through that in any situation, airplane – mall, whatever, you're, you're a little bit, you're not a little bit, you're a lot more sympathetic. And you, I will genuinely, I don't like to talk to people at all outside of work. And if you're a, a parent stuck in that situation, I will, I will help people on airplanes. I will help complete strangers because I've been there. So maybe you put all those people together. All right. And they don't necessarily have to have the best seats. I would probably say, give them a clear eye view of whatever like kind of jumbotron that you have specifically. So the kids can stay occupied. Right. <laughs> But maybe you have, like, strong Wi-Fi in that section, or maybe you have plugs underneath the thing so the kids can, like, plug in, like, a little Amazon Fire tablet. And then you have the adult student section. So let's say you're 26, you're not married yet, you're still making a ton of mistakes, you're hungover at work a lot, and you're going to see those, like, five or six home games a year. You're going to try and make it up for everyone. And you're still going to, like, you're going to be that guy, I would say girl, but that guy that, like, goes to the bar at 26, but, like, the college bar at 26, like, and it's 1 a.m., that guy. I know a lot of those guys. You should have your own section because you can't really pull off being in the student section anymore before it just like borders on pedophilic. Like it's pretty bad. But you also, you don't want to be around like, you don't want to be around me and Tommy Godfrey. Like you don't want to get bumped by a diaper bag. I will say you're onto something here because there's another group of fans to go along with the, the old people who, who want you to sit down on third and five. It's the people who refuse to sit down in the first quarter on first and 10. These are the, they're, they're so I think that's the adult the, student section, right? They're used to the student section and they and they make a point to keep standing because they think that that proves they're a better fan than everybody else. 
certain age, like 25 to 30. Yeah, very recently out of college, uh, and they still think they're in college and all that. And and once you've gone past that age group, uh, and your view is being blocked uh, because it's you know first and ten, and yes, uh, yeah, uh, then you hate them as much as the old people. So I'm I am uh, I'm I'm right in the middle of those two groups, and I understand the hatred of both ways. But yes, give them give them their own section where they can stand no matter what. Mm-hmm. And I, I see nothing wrong with this. Are we missing any groups? Or is uh, this just see. a phase of life that we haven't entered into? Like where where does the parent <laughs> where does the parent of teenagers go? Well, I think at that point it's fine because either the teenager is is there and willing to watch the game, or they don't. They really don't want to be seen anywhere near their parents. They don't want to go to the game anyway. So okay. they're fine. They're fine. They can yeah. they can go wherever. All right. Um, but yeah, the the, the five year old because I mean I I've taken the kid to a um, to like a, a, a fall scrimmage or the spring game and 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 things of that nature where they can kind of run around a little bit. But you are even then like when they have space to run, you're still kind of watching them and minding them as much as you are watching the game scrimmage, whatever. And um, it is a different experience, yes. So, like, I'm an objective journalist and, like, a very serious journalist and, and really, like, important to capital I. Um, but hypothetically, I might have in 2000, and, I want to say 10, yes, seven years ago, hypothetically, I might have driven to Oxford and hypothetically, my dad and I might have met up in Oxford for the Arkansas Miss game when Bobby Petrino was the head coach. And hypothetically, I might have found us tickets through a con- through a connection to like hypothetically fifteen ten rows back from the Arkansas bench. Hypothetically, we might have been wearing Falcons gear, and hypothetically, I might have spent pretty much the entire afternoon really not really drunk just pretty pretty much sober i think i had like a diet coke honestly um screaming some of the most offensive things outside of like a gender race type parameter i could at petrino as they lost that game hypothetically of course of course um hypothetically there may have been children around who but i'm not a parent at this point right who won that game by the way uh, Ole Miss did. Okay, because there's nothing more embarrassing. Um, I still. Remember- oh no 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 no! Dad, hey, I waited until they were up, like okay, eighteen, nineteen, twenty range. Like oh no 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 no. Yeah, no, back no. in like the late nineties or whatever, they um, the visiting the visiting bench was on the same side as the student section at Mizzou games. They actually don't allow that in the SEC apparently, uh, and so the, wow. there have been some arrangements made in that regard. But um, I remember. It would have probably been the 99 Nebraska game where um, Nebraska still had Dominic Rayola, uh, the center who uh, went on to be, a, you know, a, a, I think a re- relative, a pretty big success in the NFL. I don't remember. I don't pay attention to the NFL. But um, he – Wish I didn't. He, he started interacting with the fans a little bit. And so okay. the fans started interacting back, and that was a lot of fun, except that Nebraska's up by like 40 points. And we have a guy who's still trying to get the upper hand, like behind us, like, oh, your name sounds like ravioli, her, and, and all this stuff that was just embarrassing. And when you're getting the crap kicked out of you, you just sit and you, you just, you stop. You, you don't, you have no ammo at that point, especially since at that point, I think uh, Nebraska also won like 21 games in a row in the series. Right. You, just, you, you stop. 
But this guy was tra- he he kept looking. He knew he had the perfect line somewhere in him, and he kept searching for it, and he never found it. Do you think that it's just because I have a podcast with you and I've known you for a long time that I'm just starting to think in my head that there's something to the Missouri-Nebraska rivalry that the rest of the nation doesn't know about that you guys should play each other? I, I mean, well, first of all, I'm pretty sure Nebraska's booked through 2057. So no, I'm I, I mean, I, I'm not saying I'm not saying hey, let's make it happen, but I'm just saying, you know. Well, it was a, it was there's a, something to it. I can freely admit that that was a massive uh, big brother, little brother kind of relationship where Missouri fans fans were desperate for the Nebraska game every year. And it was like the fifth most important game on the Nebraska schedule for Nebraska fans. So from a Missouri standpoint, it was an enormous thing. And and the fact that they basically, they split, I I don't remember exactly what it was. They basically split about the last eight or 10 games, if I remember right. Um, Mm -hmm. And and so that was a big thing. Nebraska won the last two, though. So that that's still kind of, you know, that'll kind of irk Missouri fans a little bit. But no, I mean, it was a it was a it was your typical conference rivalry of that um, under that category. It was a very intense big brother, little brother kind of thing where one side cares about it way more than the other. But when the, when little brother starts winning, big brother starts caring a lot more. Bill, where are we going? Do we want to jump into the preview now? Do we want to clean up some of the questions that we haven't gotten to? Or is there something hot off the... I mean, we're, we've kind of had a lull this week. It's been kind of quiet. Yeah. So this is pretty funny. Last week, I was kind of uh, messing with Georgia fans a little bit on the podcast, talking about how mad they were going to be at me uh, about the preview going up the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, it really wasn't that bad. It was pretty kid glove stuff, stuff I had mentioned before. But it really wasn't. I mean... I, I, you know, freely acknowledge that Kirby Smart hire could still work out great, and it, they they could if if they you know three or four things happen, they could be a top fifteen caliber team for sure. Um, so I thought it was kind of a misdirection kind of play, but I still pointed out that the Mark Richt firing was uh, objectionable, and so that, that's all it takes. And, and I, re, I was reminded of this this morning when I was uh, finishing up the Tennessee preview. So here's how the Tennessee preview starts. I, I drew reference to the 2007 series that we did at SB Nation, um, pointed out that we had a Tennessee piece in there about how they were actually good 10 years ago, and they won, the, they won their fourth SEC East title in 10 years. Uh, they scared the living hell out of LSU in the SEC title game until it picked six. Mm-hmm. Um, and they finished, uh, you know, I think they won either nine or they won 10 games. And they finished ninth in S&P Plus that year. Uh, mm-hmm. Rock solid team. And this was after, you know, they had like a, a long string of like six top 10 S&P finishes over about a nine-year period. Uh, they had, had briefly had a blip from like 02 to 05. They were merely good. They were, you know, 20 to 30 good. Uh, and then they surged back into the top 10 in 06 and 07. 08, they, they lose uh, Eric Ainge, uh, Jonathan Crompton, and Nick Stevens struggle a little bit. Uh, the quarterback position is, is momentarily at least a disaster. Uh, they lose some close games. They, they're held in, to, in check a, a whole bunch. They, um, they lose twice while scoring 14 or – well, excuse me, they lose twice while allowing 14 or fewer points. Um, they just have a, a randomly bad offense because the quarterback situation is unsettled. It happens. Mm-hmm. Um, they then fire Phil Fulmer, and 10 years later, they're waiting to win another East title and win 10 games again. Oh, um, man, when you frame it up like that, you're just trying to piss them off. I'm trying to piss them off because I really enjoy it. And and I'm right. That's like that was I, I was uh, one of my good blogger friends is our, our friend Blue Tarski at, at um, his, what is it? Get the picture is his uh, his old WordPress site. 
Uh, I still like he'll he'll reference stuff I do a lot, and I'll occasionally check the comments. And uh, I admitted in the Georgia piece last week that I kind of enjoy tweaking Georgia fans a little bit. Uh, and so some somebody in the comments was like, "See, he knows he's he's just trolling everybody." Like, no, I believe what I'm saying, and I'm right. So, oh, I, I think therefore, we've been, we've been really clear on this show that we 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 laughed out loud when they fired Rick and brought in Smart and expected national title caliber instantly and without any type of transition. And I realized, I mean, I was very much in the minority, even among SB Nation staff, when it came to whether they should or shouldn't fire Rick. I know there was a case for it. Um, but my, but my issue is this, and, and by the way, let me put a pin in Tennessee. I'll come back because I think the angst is a different flavor. Yeah. My issue is not firing Rick. My issue was the, I, you know, it's weird. It's one of those things where I don't know if it's a chicken or egg, but the fan expectation immediately upon firing him and hiring Kirby and the administration's message I just thought for sure you would have to say, look, we've had an, it, it's incredibly delicate and it's very hard to do is to say, look, we've had an incredibly successful run with an amazing, impressive uh, coach and a better human being, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We feel like it's time for a change. Accordingly, we are going to rebuild under, you know, our next head coach, smart, whatever. At the time, I mean, just whatever coach we bring in, we, we're, we're going to adjust, or, you know, et cetera. We want to we go in a different direction. They didn't really do that. They sort of let the messaging get out in the media and the culture and message boards and everything else that they got Nick Saban, which is exactly what every other school did when they got a Saban assistant. And so that was always my issue was – you and I got hit. Uh, I think it was like a Georgia podcast, or I can't remember what it was. A couple, well, I guess, last off season, right? About that we were critical. Uh, everyone wants to take it as in the context of we were critical of Smart or we were critical of the hire. I'm not critical of either one of those things. I'm critical of the fact that you think it's plug and play. It's 100 percent not. I don't expect them to be that good this year. But I, I just, I guess I'm amazed that you fire a coach who consistently wins you nine to ten games, and then you hire a brand new coach who's, who you you say is going. We need him to change everything, right? That was the message. But also, we're going to be better instantly with absolutely no lag. How is that possible? And then when that didn't happen, what one response that I got a lot of that I wasn't actually prepared for quite a bit was Rick left him with a disaster. Talent was rah, 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 rah. like sure. Sure, Rick left him with. I mean, at what point is there a lull? Like, and the number one high school recruit in the or uh, quarterback recruit in the country, and the components of a defense that had just ranked like twelfth in defensive S and P plus and returned quite a bit. Um, yeah, he left. Uh, Rick left them with a shaky offensive line and a freshman quarterback. Otherwise, they were loaded. But there's but there's no argument. I mean, I, I might be wrong. If Rick stays, I don't know if they're necessarily going with that freshman quarterback. Those were decisions made by a different offensive coordinator. Right. I, bet they do. I, I bet they do. But the, the, among other things, that quarterback's coached by Mark Richt, who had a pretty good – I mean, not obviously he didn't have a 100% track record when it came to quarterbacks. Right. Um, but, I mean, you know, I, yeah, I, I think they would have um, – and among other things, you know, they regressed in 2015, absolutely. Their offense fell apart when the, one of the best players in the country got hurt, you know, God forbid – um, and their quarterback situation was dicey. Their offensive line wasn't very good. They still ranked in the 40s and won 10 games. Um, 
I, like he, he, the the recruiting angle, which I realize is a big part of you know they wanted to recruit like Alabama, and and so far Smart almost is at least last year's class. Um, and I, I understand that in their eyes, recruiting was a little bit of a lag. And uh, but the bottom line is he was matching that with you know when that happened, he also matched that with one of his best coaching performances to get that team to ten wins anyway. So or nine nine and three, I guess. So. Yeah, no, I, I mean, again, I, I love needling fan bases when I know I am based in fact. And in this case, I really do. Uh, I enjoy the pushback. I like hearing about what a talent disaster Georgia's lineup was last year um, with all those five-star defensive linemen and five-star running backs. And, Cupboard was empty. Yeah, it's totally empty. I mean, I, I don't even know how they won eight games last year. But, uh, let anyway. me, all right, so let me go back to Tennessee real fast. So uh, to me, it's a greater sense of angst, one, because – it's been 10 years, all right, since you fire the brand-name head coach, who, in Tennessee's case, wins you a national title. Although I think, I, I mean, Rick, to me, is of that caliber, if not greater oh, yeah. than yeah, Palmer. Yeah. He just, the circumstances don't align. Right, I mean, that, that wasn't even the best Tennessee team that won the national title that year. It was just right. so they, they timed it right, and Georgia never quite got the timing right. What a Tennessee fan will argue and then hate themselves for is that they did figure it out. They just lost the coach. Because the 2009 Tennessee football team. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if, if, if I ever get a chance, and I don't know how, I think we would need certain people to die and the statute of limitations to expire in certain places. It's one of the most interesting stories in college football. If they stay and Lane doesn't go into a completely, just a complete mess of a situation at USC, because I'm, I'm of the opinion you don't get Lane Kiffin, warts and all, you don't get a, a, an accurate evaluation because of the because of what goes on at USC outside of like the pure X's and O's. But you might have at Tennessee. I think you you get a closer examination of Lane Kiffin if he stays for two extra years at Tennessee than you would anywhere else. And I'm not blaming him for leaving, or I don't have a dog in the hunt. I don't care. But Tennessee was well on its way to figuring things out. They were recruiting talent at an insane clip. I mean, that, that staff of people, is, it's, it's absolutely nuts. Go back and look at that, ten, that 2009 uh, coaching staff. I mean, they're ringers. They're brutal. So, um, And I'll pull it up here in a second because now, I mean, I don't even think you could afford to put that staff together. But not only, so, not only did they lose the coach, which, you know, sucks, they also bring in a coach in Dooley that, to me, like when you talk about the 10-year desert or the gap or whatever, Dooley's inability or, I don't know, misfire or however you want to do it in coaching, that's what, I mean, even now Butch Jones is still suffering from it. I would say the, the team they put on the field last year was probably the most competent and like upper-tier SEC worthy that you could really evaluate. That's how long that Dooley lag took. He didn't, there was a class bill where I don't think he signed the no lineman. How is that possible? Yeah, I mean, and, like in the entire class, there wasn't a single offensive lineman. Yeah, they. Like, I mean, did, they, did someone not come down the hall and be like, "Hey, uh, do you do you want to go like maybe get a tackle?" Well, I mean, I'm not gonna like specific now. Granted, when when you got when you're fielding five of them at any given time, then that that is you, you might want to get one. There is still, I mean, I'm 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 willing to look past that that specific just because you know I don't remember what else they had at the time. If they only had five linemen on the team, then that was a problem. If they had 14, then maybe they could afford to skip a class. But um, by the way, before I forget, I just looked it up. Phil Ful- uh, like in 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 Georgia fans' defense, Phil Fulmer was better than Mark Richt. 
Um, he had eight top 10 S&P performances, and Richt only had six. Uh, they also went five and seven his last year, not 10 and three. Uh, so, you know, there's that. But regardless, Different SEC, man. Different SEC. And, and he never once, like, uh, yeah, in, in 16 years, he was never outside the top 40. He was only twice in the 30s. Uh, one of them was that last year because they had the sixth best defense in the country, but their offense was suddenly in the hundreds um, after two straight top 10 offenses, which, you know, I think he would have probably figured out how to turn that around. But uh, patience, I, I, and this is one thing, maybe this is just, this is a little, uh, you know, uh, an agenda item for me throughout what I write. And, and uh, it's a pretty lame agenda item to be quite honest, but the like patience so frequently pays off when it comes to this stuff. If you can, if you can have it and the, the structure of college football is such that you're not allowed to have patience because once the, the boosters who really think they know what they're talking about, start threatening to, to w- remove some money from uh, the coffers, you have to almost, you almost have to listen to them and you have to, to go down that road and boosters are always wrong. They're always wrong. But we have to listen to them because they also pay our bills. And, and it's just such a stupid structure when you think about it. Uh, but, you know, whatever. It, it, it's, it is what it is. Uh, before we move on, 2009 Tennessee football staff, Lane Kiffin, Monty Kiffin, Ed Ogeron. Eddie Gran, who is currently the play caller at Kentucky, but was on the national title staff at Florida State, um, was the OC at Cincinnati. Frank Wilson, head coach at UTSA now. Lance Thompson, he's the – is he the D.C.? I think he's the D.C. Yeah, uh, I know he's defensive line at South Carolina. I don't know if he has the D.C. title. He was at D.C. at some point, I think. Uh, Willie Mac Garza. Jim Chaney's the OC at Georgia now. David Reeves, who was Willie Taggart, one of Willie Taggart's play callers, um, and was going to be probably the guy actually calling the plays at Oregon before his DUI this year. Um, and then I'm trying to think. I think that's it. But it's just a ridiculous amount, specifically in guys who could recruit like to the South and the South itself and Florida. It was exactly what you needed at the time now, with with Tennessee to become like a national recruiting force. Now, it would have also been a program led by Elaine Kiffin and a, and a much younger Elaine Kiffin than what exists now. Oh, it explodes at some point. I'm just, I mean, yeah. I'm not trying to tell you like they, they, they become some sort of dynasty of 10-win seasons, but I'm definitely saying that in that 10-year period that you examine Tennessee, there. I'll put it this way. Put any scandal you want to, to pin the tail in the Lane Kiffin era at Tennessee, hypothetically. It's better than having Derek Dooley there. <laughs> you name it. Uh, Hookers. <laughs> sexting. I mean, whatever. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's sort of like people are at, there, there's this existential question going around from all these holier-than-thous right now about Ole Miss, like, Ole Miss is so embarrassed right now. Do you think that, like, if they had to do it all over again, they would? Every Ole Miss fan I know is like, yes, absolutely. They beat Alabama twice and went to two New Year's Six Bowls. Of course they would. They're a, look, they're an Arkansas fourth down away from winning the division. Yeah, yeah. they'll do it again. So and this time they'll hide the bodies better. So, so here's my one uh, meager defense of Derek Dooley, by the way. Uh, his first team was bad. Actually, which is funny, that was his bowl team. Um that was a straight-up mediocre team in every possible way. His second team had a very, very, very good defense. His third team had a very, very, very good offense. Uh, now, uh, on the flip side, his uh, second team had a very mediocre offense. Third team had a very me- mediocre defense. But he showed, like, 
in those last two years, he had an elite or close to it unit on both sides of the field at some point. And so, you know, maybe that's a timing thing like everything else. But if he if he if he gets those just right, then he probably still doesn't do as much with that team as he should. Yeah. I mean, just because you know, he, he didn't really prove that he was exactly the type to lead a 12-win team or something, but he would have had a very, very good team on his hands and uh, would have done a little damage with it. So there is that. That's the best I can do. Otherwise, yes, uh, going 6-7, and 5-7, seven, and 5-7 seven, and and seven with Tennessee's resources, um, not really all that impressive. But this year, just to talk about 2017 Tennessee for a second. Oh, yeah. So this is I, – I, I hadn't really thought about it until I was actually kind of writing the preview, but there are kind of two different um, levels of, of, of expectation or anxiety here. One of them is this is the perfect year for them to make a move because the pressure's off to some degree. The expectations are lowered. Now, this is for generic teammate, not for Tennessee, but a team that, you know, after years of being at five wins and whatnot and six and seven and, what, and everything, for them to break through with back-to-back nine-win seasons – and then to lose their quarterback, a couple running backs, you know, the receivers, et cetera. Um, it's now kind of the expectations are off. They can afford to step back for a year and kind of figure out their next great team with a, you know, freshman quarterback or whatever it ends up being. Uh, and then you push forward again. So there's that. And, and really, if the quarterback is ready, uh, what's his name, Dormady, the, the junior or the redshirt freshman, um, especially if it's the junior or something, he's able to come in and establish a decent, le- uh, you know, level of, of uh you know competence and then uh you've got john kelly who was really about as good as kamara in a short sample size you've got Jawan jennings um in theory this is a team that i I, i'm going to refer to 98 tennessee it's not going to be that good but in theory it could be the same kind of catch you off guard kind of good team because there's still obviously a lot of talent at play here and the offensive line if the injuries ever stop uh they had another one earlier this week i think uh, if the injuries ever actually stop on the offensive line, they've got a lot more experience than they did a couple of years ago, uh, you know, back when they were dealing with not signing an offensive lineman for a class. And, you know, the defense gets better simply because it's not as banged up as it was last year. Um, and, and Bob Shoup hasn't forgotten how to coach defense. So in theory, that's a that's a top 20 team there that can compete for the East title. And, and this is a perfect time to do it because some of the pressure is off. Now there's the other side of that in that this is Tennessee <laughs> and the nine win teams were now, take, now take the blindfold off. Right. And now you've got a situation where those two nine win teams, granted they were the best two teams that Tennessee's had in 10 years, uh, but they also left wins on the table. There was a massive sense of what if with both years, really uh, not to mention the fact that it was a missed opportunity with the division, not being, not having a top five team involved. And so it was a good time to kind of jump up and win the division. They couldn't do that. And so, in, you just look at the like the kind of progression, the, the the spin that Butch Jones tries to put on the situation, pointing out, uh, hello, this was you know two really good teams and best in a decade, uh, with all the other anxiety that comes with being at Tennessee, and where the expectations really aren't off. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really really interesting year in that regard because this is a retooling year, but he might not. I don't. I just can't tell how much slack he has. The AD is saying all the right things about you know. There's this is ridiculous. No hot seat. We just won nine games, et cetera. But the fans are whew, fans are, are are Tennessee fans or something. I'll, that's, well, here's that's the really reason there. Um, one, they're not in the best financial shape in the world to be eating another buyout right now. In fact, I think they're still paying Phil Fulmer money. They also have a little bit of a power vacuum in that John Curry just came over from Kansas State. 
he was not the odds-on favorite to get the job. The guy, oh man, I should know this off the top of my head, shouldn't I? But the the candidate that everyone was pushing was the UT Chattanooga AD. Oh right. Yeah. Um, and so there's a bit of a, uh, I mean, I, I guess you would say re-identification process going on. David Blackburn is a UTC athletic director. I, I should have known that off the top of my head, but he's a uh, he was the guy that everyone was pushing to come in and take over. So they don't really know who they are right now. And that's okay because they're they're shifting cultures at Tennessee and maybe getting away from some of the DNA, the orange DNA guys that are from East Tennessee that are, you know, 30, 40 years connected to the program. There's a modernization that's going on. Um, I think Butch is fine this year. I mean, that's people – I'm not trying to qualify him as a coach or the staff or anything. I'm just saying that that situation alone – Combine them with the fact that they're probably going to have at least a winning record. Like, what's a, I think a worst case scenario for Tennessee is seven and five. Yeah, they've got a softer schedule than a lot of teams. Um, when they catch LSU, they get him in Knoxville, and I think that's a momentum game for Butch. That like you have to, if you're Butch, with the attention off of you now, and a lot of people in circles. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. Have deemed you as this failure or whatever. You get to flip that back to your your advantage now, and and go as far into the radar as a program the size of Tennessee can. So you know, here's, yeah, here's the, they've got a pretty, a pretty decent schedule. So, um, you know, they're projected 24th in S and P and that's with a number 26 offense and 38 defense. Um, I, right. Yeah. I would, I wouldn't be completely surprised. You know, they're just a couple of injuries away from playing a ton of freshmen on offense and the skill positions and quarterback and everything else. And so, you know, 26, I could see them falling below that. I would be surprised if the defense doesn't exceed that a little bit. I do think, uh, you know, even though I know what they lost, Derek Barnett and all that, but I think just the, it was the the way things fell apart injury-wise during the year. Like Shoop, yeah. I, I included a, a quote from Shoop that I saw a couple months ago um, about how he just, like, his problem last year was he wasn't adapting. He was still kind of, you know, because you, you spend eight months out of the year preparing, like, here's what we're going to be, and here's what we're going to do, and here's what we're going to do to stop people uh, and then they, they lose Jalen Reeves Maven really early. Um, they, and then they just one after another, they're having to change the linebacking core in the secondary, especially a little bit defensive line too, a defensive tackle. Um, they're just constantly shuffling. And at some point he kind of loses sight of, here's what we're actually good at. Uh, and he, it was like, he still had the preseason framing in his head and he just started doing things that are calling things that his guys couldn't do very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, that I, you know, that was, a that was bad on his part, but it's not a sign that he's never going to be able to rebound. He had, you know, two top 30 defenses S and P wise at Vanderbilt. He had three, uh, three top 15 defenses at Penn state um, or two. Yeah. He was, on, he was there two years, right? Two well, years, yeah. two years at happy Valley. Yeah. Um, and so, and then pride comes in and basically puts the same defense on the field last year, but um, yeah, very little change, but they, I mean, that was by design. Yeah, and so, you know, he has a, a clear track record. And if they get back up into the top 20 or 25 on defense, you know, their schedule right now is set up to where they only have – they're only going to be uh, uh, underdog in three games. Like, obviously, they're, they're going to get thumped at Alabama, which whatever. Um, but LSU, right now, I have them about a 9.5-point underdog, uh, 29% win probability. I've got uh, Florida, they're 9.1-point uh, underdogs and a 30% chance, uh, win probability. Otherwise, 51%, 56%, 57%, 61 a ton of toss-up games that they're slightly favored in, that if they exceed projections just a little bit, that's a relatively comfortable situation. And even with this in-transition team, they go 8-4, and four, maybe 9-3. and three. 
Uh, I realize they probably don't win the division in that case, although they could. Um, but that's a good year. And I, they're and also, point, I, I just can't, I, I can't figure out what, what, to, I mean, aside from beating Alabama or winning the East or whatever, like, is there a, so, a, such a thing as a good year for Tennessee fans at this point? You and I can say that there is because there definitely is. And, and really everything is sort of pointing North because let's just say they go chalk and, and they go nine and three and they lose the three games that they're supposed to. That's a phenomenal year. That's a phenomenal year based on what's happened before. It's a phenomenal year based on what you have on the roster. And that's, you know, the SEC 9-3, that's great. Unless you're, unless you're Nick Saban's Alabama, it's not a disappointment to go 9-3. and I don't care what the situation but is. But you're not Nick Saban's Alabama, and we know how that drives everybody crazy. The culture here is that Bush himself has, maybe does not have the ability or the interest in being the character they need because you're not the rebuild guy and you're not the sequel guy. Kiffin was the sequel guy. Dooley was supposed to be the rebuild fresh start guy. You're cleaning up after two strikes. And so in order to do that, you have to almost operate faith-based. You have to engage and stoke and perpetually keep those emotions up with the fan base because they've been burned twice. It's a decade in the Valley. They're a laughingstock. The fools around the part of Tennessee that I live in that think Alabama's a rival, well, I mean, if you're using that metric, your brain's fried. It's the same. I mean, that's why Mark Rick's gone. That's why everyone loses their mind in the SEC is because of Alabama. But Tennessee, look, man, you have no business right now trying to evaluate yourself against Alabama. And also, they're not your rival, man. It's just a scheduling hiccup that the culture has encouraged for too long. I think it's the dumbest rivalry in the SEC. It's but, not always this bad. But here's, yes, it is. Look at the streaks. Well, I mean, it's I the streakiest rivalry. Yeah, I mean, it's not always this pointed in this direction. It's always pointed in an extreme direction. It's not a rivalry if you just go and chunk after chunk at each other. I just, I don't understand it. Don't tell me I don't know. It's because I don't get it. Because I've lived in the South almost my entire life. I've lived in Tennessee for eleven years, and I live four hours from Tuscaloosa. So don't tell me I don't understand. But anyway, Tennessee itself is fine. It's just that I don't know if anybody, and it's not really a knock against Bush, but obviously he's a very, you know, He needs to you stop know, defending himself. When he defends himself, bad things come out of his mouth. He has, he has not shown the flair needed to be the public face. And, and, but I don't know if 85% of coaches could, man. Seriously, this fan base has been beaten up. And when you go about the champions for life thing, that gets distorted. You cho- I mean, I, I honestly think it starts with choking the lead away uh, against Muschamp's Florida. I think well, that, that's one where people absolutely just stand back and go, I can't do this anymore. Well, that was just such a I, – I, and I think I have a little of this too. Like I, I didn't write a ton about it in, that, in today's preview, but there's just th- that palpable sense of fear. Uh, if that's the right word, it was like fear of success almost in 2015. Like, oh man, we're beating OU. Ah, and then they blow it. They blow it against Florida. They blow it against Arkansas. They, I mean, it's yeah, hard was to that say. that they, OU game? That was, yeah. that was pretty bad. And it's hard to say they blew it against Alabama, but technically they were leading in the fourth quarter and didn't win. Um, and that's, that was all four losses. That 2015 team was a good, and they outscored opponents by 200 points, and they still lost four games by a total of seven, eight, 12. 17 points uh, to really good teams. 
But, you know, so it, on paper, that's a great year and a wonderful step forward. But when you watch the games, and this is, you know, stats versus eyeballs, I guess, watch the game nerd. But I did watch those games, and there was just such a clammy palm kind of uh, just they, – they, they were – it was like they were scared to, to, to bail here. And they started – I was putting on the, the sideline with, I think, 11 minutes to go in the fourth against Oklahoma. And the technical term is they got the tight ass. Yeah, they had I mean, it in the you, second if, quarter. As you soon could as they went up, feel the nervousness on that sideline. As soon as they went up, they packed it in. Like, okay, well, we've scored like whatever it was, fourteen or seventeen points. Maybe that'll be enough. And they just they stopped trying at that point. And that's ridiculous. They could have what they could have been up thirty four to three or something in that game had they kept their foot on the the accelerator. But they started. They went into like go into a shell, run the clock mode. Twenty five minutes into the game. Well, this wasn't twenty eight to three. Um, you that you did that to yourself. You're the one watching that this morning. I have to write something for our NFL team, so I have an excuse. Um, I only watched like little clips. It's because Devonte Freeman signed his extension today, and so they were showing clips, and there were two plays. And I'll get out of this ditch, I promise. So there's two plays from the Super Bowl that they showed, and I have no memory whatsoever. I was sober for the entire Super Bowl. I have literally, I think I've succeeded in doing the Eternal Sunshine bit to my brain uh, until I watch it again. Uh, the Vols, it's it's real simple. Uh, you're more talented than Georgia Tech. I'm not saying wonky things couldn't happen in a primetime game on that's Monday night. 50, that's a 56%. That's a, I mean, you want, we, want to, we want to talk about big first-week games. Yeah. I think the expectation is that they should win that relatively easily. That's not, that, that's not the case. Well, here's the deal. If the expectation – I would agree with the, 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 the mob with the pitchforks there. You lose Georgia Tech, I can't defend you anymore. Why not? I can't say, hey, this program's doing okay. Like Georgia Tech's won a lot of games over the last 10 years. They won nine I'm games not, last year. I'm not talking about fact and metric. I'm well, talking I, about... Yeah, but you're, you're now, you're saying you would understand, and that's not... That's oh, not I would, no, here, I, yes, I would understand that they were they were officially at their wit's end, yes. Okay, no. Yeah. Now, if you if you tell me objectively in a vacuum that Georgia Tech beats Tennessee, I go, yeah, okay, that's probable. It's possible, definitely. Like, it's not – to me, I'm like, oh, my God, ULM beat Arkansas. It's not that. What I'm saying is they – he has a chance. Let's move past Georgia Tech for a second. Tennessee has a chance. Georgia Tech, Indiana State win those games and then win in Florida, and it almost doesn't matter what other three losses you take. <laughs> as long as the, as long as it's not Vanderbilt, which it might. I mean, that's what that's one of the safer games on the schedule this time around. It could be Kentucky. It could easily be Kentucky. Would that still be? They beat Florida and lose to Kentucky. Yeah. Did they beat South Carolina and Georgia? Those are both home games. Right. Um, that's the other thing too. Well, before before you answer that question, you're at Florida. Let's say you win that game. You come home. And you get, for the next three weeks, or four weeks, you get home versus UMass, home versus Georgia, a week off, and home versus South Carolina before you have to go and take the Alabama. And as far as road games go, Kentucky's not a road game. You're, I mean, you're going to bust in as many fans as they've got. I mean, it's just like Kentucky basketball, but reversed. Yeah, but then that's just more people there to watch them lose to Kentucky. Damn, Bill. Damn. Well, I mean, it's, a, it's another toss-up. The toss-ups here, the, the 50% games that I mentioned earlier, Georgia Tech's 56, Georgia's 51, Kentucky's 57, um, and then uh, Missouri's 61. So um, you know, th- none of those are safe. And, right. and South Carolina's only 66, so a, a seven-point favorite right now. 
So, I mean, yeah, you, you start 3-0. and you've done, your South, you've done your South Carolina preview, right? Yes. Hmm. All right, you're talking me out of this now. And what I'm gauging this on is not numbers. It's not your previews. It's because this is a program I've grown to know inordinately well living here. And so I'm trying to figure out how to break their brains in the worst way possible. <laughs> it's beating Georgia Tech in Florida. Then it's losing to South Carolina, Alabama, Kentucky three in a row. That's yeah. it. I just solved it. Well, right, because then they end up beating LSU. So that's still, you know, they'll get past that. No, 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 no. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I well, just no, said you start about, the thought... season. You start the season three and zero. Oh, you beat Florida, which at this point I thought we were still figuring out nine win prob- uh, nine win scenario. No no, 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 no. Now I'm just trying to just show they're still beating hearts to them before they perish. Three and zero. UMass four and zero. Yeah. You, you drop three in a row. Lose at home to Georgia and South Carolina and then get crushed by Alabama. I do enjoy, by the way, and Tennessee. Then Kentucky, and then Kentucky's a squeaker. So, all right, here's the death. I don't know why you just taught me into being so – this is terrible. All right, they're 3-0, and then they're – or they're 4-0, then they're 4-3. and All right, which would put them at 1-3 and in the conference. They win a squeaker at Kentucky. They beat Southern Miss – they beat Missouri. How many wins is that? And then they lose. They get drilled by a better LSU team. I will say, like, objectively, LSU is a better team. And then they lose to Vandy. There you go. Because what that allows for is that this, is, this would be the peak Vol Nation thing that I've lived under for so long, which is 4-0, everybody get their hair cut like Butch. Lose three in a row. The South Carolina one's going to sting the worst, even though you hate Georgia and Bama more because it's a matter of, oh, God, where are we in the pecking order? So so Georgia takes you off the perch. South Carolina gives you the existential crisis, and Bama breaks your soul because it's going to be bad. And if your soul's broken, what do you have left for Kentucky? Then you go go scooting up to Lexington, and then you realize at this point, oh, man, maybe we're not that good. And, oh, we – we barely beat we barely beat Kentucky. All right, you barely beat Kentucky. You build some momentum out of that. You start talking about how good recruiting is. You come home. You beat Southern Miss by fourteen. You beat Missouri on the road. That's a win in the conference. Everybody's feeling good. And then LSU comes in and road grades you just like Pama did. And then salt in the wound is Vanderbilt. That's the one where you're left wandering in a daze into some crap bowl. Now I will say this. Let's flip it around. Here's how the momentum builds quickly. I'm counting on a 4-0 start, so I'm counting on them beating Florida, which is a big deal. And, yeah, and yeah, according to, that would be a big deal okay. and a surprise, but yeah. All right. If you take one, if you beat either like – you're not going to beat Alabama, but if you beat either Georgia or South Carolina and you lose one and then you lose to Bama, you beat Kentucky, you beat Southern Miss, you beat Missouri, I think they're riding really, really high coming into LSU, and he finally gets to build a, He finally gets to build that moment, that cultural shift moment where they have the ability to come out against LSU, play out of their skin a little bit, and be under the radar. Maybe LSU only has one or two losses at this point, comes in as the favorite, and then you have that potential moment for him that sits as the, as the like, this is when it changed, and this is when we believed. And also it's late November. So you'll beat Vanderbilt on Thanksgiving, and then you guide into some serious because they're they're recruiting really well. Is one of the reasons I've I mean that's one of the reasons I've noticed, and, I, and I'm, I don't buy into this whole like he's on the hot seat stuff. So that's the optimist thing because I feel like I know a couple of Tennessee fans that listen to this, and we were just so mean just now 
That was so mean, Bill. Why do you make me do these things? Yeah, right now they're number one in the SEC in, uh, in uh, 247's ranking. So call it. Call it now. Um, but but there's some but I'm saying there's some serious wins there in recruiting. Like I, I've been hearing about this. Oh, yeah, yeah, coaches, no, no. So. They had a, just a, like a nice batch of them recently, if I remember right. Yeah. Uh, I'm saying you can engineer a nine and three season that makes everybody feel really oh, yeah. good. I mean, this because this is supposed to be a retooling year of sorts, and if they match whatever they did under Dobbs, I just really for me this isn't. I know the talent's there. I just need to the the in, in terms of um, I just need to see from Butch Jones that they could just go out and get it. I mean, last year, even last year, the nine win season that I'm calling a success. I, I remember what we were saying the first month of the year when they were lucky as hell to get by Appalachian state. They had a bunch of turnovers or, or they were, they recovered, but they fell on a bunch of loose balls early against Virginia tech and rode that out. They needed some turnovers to get uh, past Ohio. Uh, they were, you know, they were just lucky as hell the first five games of the year during that five and zero start. Um, so, I mean, I remember that, but I just, I need to see them just drub a good team. You know, just that, I think that's it because I, I, it really is like he's trying to play this saving card where we're just going to outmuscle you. And once we get up, we're just going to lean on you until you fall over and all that. They don't, they don't have that talent for the SEC. They can't do that. And they just, they, they make things harder than they need to be sometimes. And even late last year, the only reason they kind of unleashed the offense a little bit is because their defense was suddenly terrible. But in the process, they proved like they're off the last month of the year, they had the best offense in the country. And they could have had that longer. They could have had that all along, but they were yeah, they they were playing like Saban's game or the SEC game instead of just trying to be an awesome team. And that you'll never ever do that right. I, so I just need to see from them first opportunity. Maybe it's Florida. Maybe there is a situation where they're loose and uh, they're underdogs and they can just come out and and start firing and they get up a big lead and then they mm-hmm. don't actually relinquish the lead they actually keep sacking the quarterback and keep piling on that's what i need to see from them i need to see that they're capable of that because they never even when they're good they don't go to that they don't do that one of the things i forgot to mention is that nine and three would probably put them in first place possibly i mean obviously tiebreakers etc but if they beat florida especially yeah i just think probability yeah so if you beat florida in that situation and and georgia's the other team that you beat in that three game split that i'm talking about that probably puts you back in Atlanta where you're going to get trucked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> First Saturday in December, call it uh, a different name, and it'll still be a, most likely a drubbing because they are still at, at their heart trying to be Bama, and it's not going to work. Uh, we need to get, it's been an hour. We need some damn podcast questions because we actually got I've got, got one for you real fast. Okay. Um, and maybe we maybe we'll turn this into a segment on next week's show, or, or just devote a little bit more time to it. I'm starting to not like the attention Florida State Alabama is getting because they're t- it's becoming fait accompli. Okay. Because not only are we talking about Florida State Alabama and the Chick Fil A kickoff in Atlanta in September, we are now talking about Alabama Florida State at the national title game in Atlanta as like it's a finite, determined outcome. One no. Two, what fun is that? <laughs> that sucks. The whole reason we get into this business is because it's so unexpected at times. I don't like this. Well, I just wanted I, to air my grievance. Well, and that's fine. I, I do. Um, I, the one thing we've got going for us is it is week one, and we're going to be drinking from the fire hose. And so no matter how much attention we give it now, and we will give it attention then too, um, we'll also be reacting to 100 other things. And so there is that. We, we do have that to fall mm-hmm. back on. Um, and it's not the Monday night game, thank God. I mean, granted, the Monday night game, the Tennessee Tech game isn't as good, 
Um, but it's at least like, it's not the last thing we see. So we have plenty to react to. That's the best I can do. All right. Um, Questions. Joel Penning, uh, asks, this was a couple days ago, as of August, this is a really interesting question. Uh, as of August, four Mac head coaches are coaching their alma mater. Five Mountain West programs are led by alumni. Both of these numbers are higher than any P5 conference. Do you see this as a conscious effort by G5 programs to break out of the cradle of coaches' mold and have any have a chance of hanging on to coaches when they're successful? And if so, do you think that's a good thing, uh, a good hiring model, or in the end, are successful G5 alumni coaches lured by the prestige of P5 jobs just like any other coach? Now, to answer this, to help answer this at least, he he gave a list. He, he provided a list uh, by his count of everybody who uh, of all the alumni currently leading their, their schools. So you've got Scott Satterfield in the Sun Belt at uh, Appalachian State. You've got Sean Kugler at UTEP in Conference USA. At the, in the MAC, you've got Paul Haynes at Kent State, who's almost certainly going to be gone after this year. You've got Mike no- New, Noy, New, NAU. I've never been sure how to say that. At Ball State, he did okay. New. New, okay, he did pre- he did okay his first year. Might might have something there. John Bonamago uh, at uh, Central Michigan, and then Tim Lester at Western Michigan. Uh, in the Mountain West, you've got Jeff Tedford at Fresno. You've got Nick Rolovich at Hawaii. Troy Calhoun at Air Force. Matt Wells at Utah State. Brian Harson at Boise. Uh, none in the AAC, and then in the Independence, you've got Kalani Sataki. So. Then okay. he, he also provided the others. And I'll, I won't list them, but basically there's one in the ACC, two in the Big 12, one in Pac-12, three in the Big 10, and then two plus an interim uh, in the SEC. Okay. Um, so on the G5 level, it's it's not really a yes or no question. It's a mixture of situation, need, and what you can go get. First of all, so you're the going to lose you, them. You're gonna, if they're really good, you're going to lose them. Well, I mean, okay, Willie Taggart starts off at G5 Western Kentucky. That's his alma mater. The next job that he takes is G5 USF, which is the school closest to his hometown, and he, and he leaves. So, yeah, they're going to leave, okay? Um, off the top of my head, okay, so throw out BYU because that's a situation that's dictated on a completely different set of terms, yeah. all right? Of course, there's an alumnus coaching there. Um, two, schools like uh, – you rattled them off. I'm tra- I was trying to keep track of them. Um, Central Michigan. Yeah. Really tough to find a coach there. They, they were scrambling at the last minute because yeah. that was a weird situation. Okay? So they didn't have – so it doesn't sh- – it shouldn't shock you that they lean into the alumni side of things. Okay? Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Um, kind of same situation there at UTEP, right? You're not going to be able to command – you're not going to be able to, to be in a situation like one of the directional Floridas in the CUSA and say, look look at how much talent we have. You can recruit to Florida. And I know it's a small school, but you can really make noise here. You can't do that at UTEP, so you have to lean on some of that. So some of these some of these are happenstance, and some of these are – they sought out alumni, not necessarily to insulate themselves from the coach leaving, but more to just find a, a qualified candidate and appeal to their to their – heart or home i guess i mean i'd be more interested interested to see if the people that are listed here where their hometowns are where they're from where their people are from where their wife's from that that's an appeal that you can make oftentimes in coaching that kind of keeps people keeps keeps coaches in places that you wouldn't necessarily expect yeah i you know just looking at the list here i I mean there are different uh, lots of different circumstances like jeff tedford that's a you know a what would you call that a frank solich type of hire and that you're catching them on the downturn, but in that case, he if he's still got some, completely right, and if you if if he's still got some coaching juice left in him, he's younger than I think any of us think he is. Um, then you know that, that that high, um, 
I knew you were going to ask that, and I didn't have it looked up already. But come on, guys! Yeah. All right, take a guess. Ready? Tedford. Take a guess. Don't look it up. Take a take a guess. I already said fifty. He, he's he's fifty five. I already looked it up. Um, so that one, in theory, I, I understood the logic there, even though I still am confused by how quickly they settled on Tedford. Mm-hmm. Um, but regardless, it's logic. Um, but I, that's because I think that job's gotten a lot harder than people realize. And that, well, this that, was that's like a November, that, though. I mean, they were they didn't even go through a search. It was like we have our man. But um, so then you got Rolovich at Hawaii. Um, Situation dictated. So, in, yeah, and and he won't. I mean, if he's as good, if he continues to do as well as he did last year, he won't be there long. Um, Calhoun at Air Force was obviously they needed they wanted a specific type of coach who runs a specific type of offense they know that works at a yeah. I mean academies are unique places right uh, Matt Wells at Utah State I, I don't even think I remembered that he was an alum uh, I've probably written that in every single preview and then proceeded to forget it, to forget it right afterwards He's but that was coach, yeah, yeah I mean he 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 was that one yeah that was sort of he was an up-and-comer and that helped um, plus then the, yeah, the alumni thing probably put it over the top. Brian Harson at Boise, they wanted it, clearly he wanted to be there. Uh, that was a big draw to him. And then also he had been a, such a part of the rise and, and they do seem to be leaning on the, you know, making sure that the guy in charge knows how they got to where they got. And so that's. So Harson, I think is a great example of what they're talking about here. Harson uh, of what the reader asked. Harson is someone that you can appeal to his heart. He, I mean, he tells me. He told me a story when I was out there a couple of years ago about like when he found out he got the job. He calls his wife and he plays some song about coming home and they cry together. Ah. Boise is in his soul. Yeah. No, right? he said he told he said in that piece that I've got out in a couple of weeks. He said that um, he didn't say that, but he mentioned like he 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 left uh, to kind of burnish his resume because he thought Peterson was going to be there forever and he was happy at Arkansas State. But as soon as he finds out Peterson leaves, he's like, I'm figuring out a way to go back. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that might and and consequently, I know that we're Harson is is being compared to Peterson right now ad nauseum. But if if Harson rattles off a twelve and zero year here soon or thirteen and zero year, like I, I think it will take a lot to get him out. His name doesn't show up on a lot of smart people's lists for a reason. Yeah, I think um, like when they say, "Oh, you know," they just throw out random candidates for a job that just opened. I think Harson. If you see Harson's name, it's probably bunk because I, he. He wants Boise to be right. better than it may possibly ever can be, and that's a great thing if you're a Boise fan. And you know, maybe if he if he if he can get like a fourteen and zero season, they finish fifth in the country or something. Maybe he just and then he gets pursued. Maybe he's he decides like I've I've accomplished it. I've I've accomplished what I wanted to, and and yeah. maybe at that point he becomes open. But yeah, that's that dude ain't leaving until he <laughs> until he creates something comparable to what Peterson had, and he gets an offer that fits the same way right. that Peterson fit. Right. And I don't see that happening unless like it's Texas. Or, right? Yeah, it could absolutely happen. It's just yeah, there there are yeah, many I mean, out there. Texas or Southern Cal or something like that. But to go yeah. back to as a question about the that as a hiring model. I've always said like you know when you're when you've got limited resources and everything, it's a completely different story. But when you think about um, you know, a, a, a power five school looking to hire a guy who won't leave. That is a terrible way to limit your pool of candidates. Yeah. But in some of these situations, you got to use whatever you can. Um, our friend Stockton, uh, a week ago, this is a completely different question. So, Stephen and Bill, this is extremely random, but I was hoping you guys could help me out with an issue related to my wedding. 
Uh, I'm sorry in advance to Stephen because I'm a Michigan fan who pronounces the podcast Pappin. Uh, that being said, I love your podcast. Would appreciate your wisdom. I am getting married next June in Newport, Rhode Island. And like most guys, there isn't yeah. much I can contribute other than smiling and nodding. My fiance was looking for a venue for our rehearsal dinner and is stuck between the International Tennis Hall of Fame, hi Bill, and a place called Gurney's Resort. After looking through some pictures of Gurney's, uh, it used to be a Hyatt, uh, we came to uh, we came across a lobster bake held by the AAC, so that's when it hit me. I know two people who may or may not have attended a media day conference and or lobster bake at this place. So in the past, when either of you went to AAC media days, did you spend time at Gurney's slash the Hyatt in Newport? If so, do you think it would be a better venue than next to a famous tennis court? I can't promise that your answer will carry any weight, but at least I can give my opinion on a wedding-related thing with some gravitas, uh, which would be a first in this whole process. Get rid. Did the did the Hyatt name come off? I, I I had not heard of that. It wasn't. You and I were there last year. year. Yeah. Rich, we sent Richard this year, and mm, uh, so um, my instant answer is I've been to Newport two or three. I can't remember. Uh, go with Gurney slash the Hyatt because she, and and here's the convincing point for her. Um, I think if it's still the same staff, they can they can arrange this the amazing sort of like the New England seafood experience. With like the clam bake and the lobsters yeah. and all that stuff, but also the views. Yeah, are, the pictures are going to be stupendous. If I just just go to gurneysresorts.com/newport, which is what I just did, I guess they bought it from the Hyatt. Yeah. Um, but where so so the that first photo that shows up is where they put the the clam bake, yeah. where Bill and I would stand around and talk to you know Matt Rule. So. I would definitely go with that for uh, photography purposes. It yeah, will be exactly. very windy. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh, you have got a very accurate. Um, you'll get a very accurate view of where you're getting your we- where you're having your wedding. You'll have um, yeah. the uh, lighthouse there. You'll have one of those terrifying bridges that you have to drive over to get to Newport. Uh, you'll you'll get a very adequate sense. Now the wind is a little bit weird. That can screw up a lot of wedding pictures, but. Um, you know, that said, if that ends up being too expensive or if you're looking for a place that isn't as windy, that, the, the Tennis Hall of Fame is really weird and unique and kind of cool. Um, Never been. The, the super old grass court right in the middle of everything. I don't know where they would actually have a wedding or how any of that would work because I've never heard of a wedding at a tennis club, basically. But um, they have grass courts there, and it'd be kind of really uniquely pretty, too. But it wouldn't be – it wouldn't Im- immediately scream, we were in Rhode Island. Uh, like having it at, at at this Gurney's place would. I say go with Gurney's because if it's good enough for America's Athletic Conference, That's it should right. be good enough for your P6. wife. P6, P6, baby. All right, what else you got? Uh, let's do one more. Um, I'm hungry. We're recording late today. <laughs> All right, so just because this will uh, annoy Godfrey. So Great. our friend Craig a couple days ago. Okay, so let's say that Florida State beats Bama week one. <laughs> They are a strong number one all season long until the rematch with an 11 and one Miami in the ACC championship. Let's say, let's say that Miami wins that rematch. Hey man, Mark Richt is a good coach. I don't want to hear it. I am a, I'm a Miami Homer this year by God. Mm. Okay. What? So Florida state and Miami are going to finally play in a conference title game. Okay. All right. Like after 15 years. So, what else? so mo- both teams make the playoff. FSU meets Bama in the semifinals. Another mm-hmm. rematch. The Knolls the Knowles beat Bama again, which sets up a third matchup with Miami. Miami <laughs> State beats Miami in the thriller, finishes 14-1. Strength of schedule includes 
playing the defending champion Clemson, SEC East champ Florida, the number three tied twice, and the number two Canes three times. Toughest schedule ever. I actually prefer Miami this year, but I thought this was fun and wanted to share. Uh, yeah, I'm totally down. He 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 completely wins me over. Great great turn at the end there. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, all for it. So you you, you, <laughs> you played Florida five. State, Miami. Yeah, give me an FSU Miami national title game. Yes, you played five top three teams. I think was the draw right there. Um, okay, I'd say that's a good place to stop. Sounds good to me, Bill. We'll be back. Um, by the time next week comes, where are you going to be on the SEC preview? Done. Uh, just about. I got five left. Uh. So I won't – I think the power rankings will go up on Thursday, but I'll have just put up the my, the Alabama preview. Let's see. Hold on a second. Am I off here? Let's see. We got Ole Miss tomorrow, A&M, A&M Friday, Florida Monday. Auburn, okay, so I've got six left. I, I lied on Twitter this morning. Florida Monday, Auburn Tuesday, LSU Wednesday, Alabama Thursday. Okay. So, uh, yes, next Wednesday is LSU Day. I wonder if anybody on this podcast has any knowledge uh, behind the scenes of anything uh, with LSU. I wonder if anybody has a story about LSU coming out in the college football preview, which Ed Ogeron tells stories about hugging people. Um, all right. <laughs> well, if that's not a teaser, I don't it's know what is. LSU quarterbacks uh, measuring. Oh, man. If you're listening to this, go check out The Advocate right now. It's the Baton Rouge newspaper. One of the best quotes ever about the about the center quarterback exchange and the preference for butt shape. It is fantastic journalism. All right, Bill. Um, we will be back next week. We will finally wrap up your 2017 season preview after the long death march that it is. I mean, I don't really have to do anything, so it's not death march for me. Um, you can find Bill uh, at SBN underscore Bill C. You can find myself at 38Godfrey. Uh, we'll be back next Wednesday at our normal time. And uh, I think that's it. Do we have anything to add? Uh, roll Tide. Roll Tide. You want to do this again next week? Sure. Roll Tide, Roll Tide. Can't do it, can't do it a third time. Just, just two. <laughs>